Christchurch, New Malden, 12th of January 2020, 11 o'clock service. Stephen Kurt speaking in the series, Romans and the Covenant, The Mystery of the Covenant, Part 2. So where did it all go wrong? Where did it all go wrong? That is a question that we get used to hearing after major disasters, don't we? Whether it is a political disaster, like the fate of the Labour Party in the recent general election, whether it's a social disaster like the tragedy of Grenfell Tower not so long ago, whether it's a sporting disaster, might seem relatively trivial, like an England team crashing out of a World Cup prematurely. It's common for there to be a post-mortem, isn't there? Where commentators try to establish the reasons why something went wrong. And that's because it's seen as vital to learn the right lessons from a disaster, isn't it? If progress in a different direction is going to be made. And what we have in Romans chapter 10 is basically Paul's assessment of what went wrong in the people of Israel's response to God. Last week, we started looking at Paul's letter to the Romans, or returned to looking at it, because we had quite a spell on it before Christmas. And we entered the lesser-known bits of this letter chapters 9 to 11. And you might have noticed that I've given to each of the sermons on each of these chapters the same title, The Mystery of the Covenant. Last week was part one, this week is part two, next week is part three. And that's because Romans chapters 9 to 11 are Paul's account of the highly mysterious way in which God's righteousness, in other words, his covenant commitment, was fulfilled. And the mystery is that it was fulfilled not just despite the failure of his covenant people Israel, it was actually fulfilled through that very failure. So last week, if you were here, we looked at chapter 9 and we saw the mystery surrounding God's mercy being extended to some while he hardened others against him. And we saw this pretty shocking claim that Paul makes, that just as uh, God hardened the heart of the Pharaoh of Egypt before the Exodus, before the escape of the Israelites from slavery, so he had also hardened the people of Israel. He had actually hardened his own covenant people. Now it is mysterious. And it is rather disturbing, particularly that part where Paul refers to these people that God hardened as objects or vessels of wrath. But as I said last week, we mustn't confuse the middle of a story with its ending. And the whole of Romans 9 to 11, taken together, reveals how God was using every part of this process, its beginning, its middle and its end, to advance his covenant purpose of bringing in those who up to this point had existed outside of his people. And last week I tried to encourage us, if we know people who seem particularly hardened towards God, perhaps within our own family, to adopt the same attitude that Paul showed towards his fellow Jews, and to continue to pray and to love these people, confident that God hasn't abandoned them, but is somehow working his purpose out, 
and what is temporarily happening is perhaps part of the process of God's purpose being worked out in a strange and mysterious manner. But at the end of chapter 9, from verse 30 onwards, and then throughout chapter 10, we see more detail from Paul about how Israel went wrong in her response to God. We see a bit more about the actual process by which she became hardened. While acknowledging a certain uniqueness about Israel and her role in the covenant story, there are some parts of this which are unrepeatable and are unique. It's also instructive for us to learn the lessons from what went wrong in the story of Israel. And at the centre of this is Paul's claim that Israel missed that righteousness is obtained by faith. Israel missed that righteousness is obtained by faith. Righteousness, as I've said throughout this series, is a covenantal term. But within this overall context, it does double service as a term. It refers to both, on the one hand, God's righteousness, in other words, his rock-solid commitment to the covenant, and it also refers to the righteousness or covenant status that God gives to those who belong to him. And Paul is quite clear throughout Romans and his other letters that this second meaning of righteousness, the status of being declared in the right by God, it can only be obtained through faith. Back before Christmas, we saw how Paul spent the whole of Romans chapter 4 showing how Abraham, the key figure in the development of God's covenant, was declared righteous by God on the basis of his faith, on the basis of his trust in God's promises. And in this chapter, Paul quotes from Moses at the end of the book of Deuteronomy to show how this was an aspect of the Incarnation. This was an aspect of God coming amongst us in Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy is a book that's all about the covenant. And near the end of the book, it speaks of the blessings that would come upon Israel if she kept the covenant and the curses that would happen if she didn't. But Deuteronomy goes further than that. And it predicts that Israel wouldn't be able to keep the covenant. And that the result of this would be the disaster of exile. But then in that passage that we heard earlier from Deuteronomy 30, Moses declared that this exile wouldn't be God's final word. Because a day would come when whether, rather than having to travel up to heaven or across the sea to find God's word, that word would instead come near to them. It would be in their mouths and in their hearts so that they could obey it. And here in Romans chapter 10, Paul says that this had been fulfilled through the coming of Jesus. What does it say? Paul says, referring to Deuteronomy, the word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. And he then goes on to identify this with the call to faith in Jesus. That is the word of faith that we are proclaiming, Paul says. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God coming amongst us in Jesus and through the Holy Spirit 
has made God's salvation wonderfully accessible. And a major implication that Paul draws from this in verses 11 to 13 of Romans 10 is that this salvation is therefore for everyone. Paul again quotes scripture, this time Isaiah, to say in verse 11, anyone who trusts in him, meaning God, will never be put to shame. And he then adds in the following two verses, for there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The most wonderful implication of God coming near, according to Paul, is that any sense of elitism in God's people has now been removed. Because the God who has come near is for everyone. We've just finished a, another Christmas here at Christchurch, haven't we? The decorations came down this week. We're so grateful to those who took them down as well as those who put them up, and they looked magnificent. And so much of the message of Christmas is that the God who came near in the baby in the manger is for everyone. Poor shepherds, pagan wise men, women as well as men, old as well as young. And that's because God has become accessible. Because of the word becoming flesh, we're able to hear God speaking directly to us, both in those words that we hear being proclaimed and also because of the Holy Spirit within our hearts. We're able to hear God's voice within us, summoning us to respond to him. Now, this salvation was available before Jesus came because we're told in the Bible that Abraham and others received it by faith. That is, as I said earlier, the major point of Romans 4. But before Jesus came, it was certainly much less clear. And that's presumably why so many within Israel missed it. And the reason that Paul gives for this is that Israel missed this by pursuing a righteousness that was by works. The irony of the covenant story, according to Paul, at the end of Romans chapter 9, was that the Gentiles who hadn't pursued righteousness had obtained it by faith. They weren't particularly looking for it, they weren't particularly seeking it, but it had found them nonetheless. And meanwhile, the great tragedy is that Israel, who had pursued righteousness, had by and large failed to attain it. And why had Israel failed to attain that righteousness? Because according to Paul, rather than pursuing the righteousness of faith, Israel had pursued it, he says, as if it were by works. Paul, at the start of chapter 10, testifies that his fellow Jews were deeply zealous for God. But he also says that this zeal wasn't based on knowledge, because they didn't know the righteousness that comes from God. They had instead sought to establish a righteousness of their own. So how are we to understand that term, a righteousness of their own? The older view associated with the reformers, people like Luther and Calvin, was that rather like the late 
medieval Catholic church, Israel was guilty of trying to earn God's salvation. Guilty of trying to amass merit before God through their rituals and through their obedience. That, according to that understanding, was the righteousness of their own that Israel was trying to establish. And it was that that made them miss the righteousness that God wanted to give them through faith. Now, for a long time, that was the fairly unquestioned uh, understanding, particularly uh, within Protestantism, of what Paul was saying here. But in the last 30 or 40 years, another perspective has emerged, often called the new perspective, although it's not particularly new now, since uh, it started to be talked about from about 1977. And this argued, and does argue, that Israel's problem wasn't so much the desire to earn her salvation as her exclusiveness. The righteousness of her own that Israel sought and what Paul speaks of here was a righteousness that was only for Israel. It was a righteousness of her own in the sense of belonging just to Israel rather than being a righteousness that was intended to reach the other nations of the world as well. And the very reason for the covenant was that God would work through Abraham's family to bless all the nations of the world, wasn't it? Back in Genesis chapter 12, that was part of the uh, calling that God gave to Abraham. Abraham, and this is what his name meant, was intended to be the father of many nations. But as things worked out, those parts of the law that Israel cherished the most tended to be those works such as circumcision and the Sabbath that separated them from the nations rather than sought to bless them. And this understanding of a righteousness of her own, it was certainly fit with Paul's counter-emphasis on the righteousness that comes by faith being for absolutely everyone. Now, whichever understanding is right, and of course it could be both, the effect was that Israel didn't accept the good news of Jesus. And Paul is very clear in verse 18 that Israel did hear this good news but rejected it. And the verses that follow end this chapter with more quotations from the Old Testament that show that this refusal was in line with Israel, according to Paul, being a disobedient and obstinate people. Pretty tough and harsh words, we might think. Now next week, when we look at chapter 11, we'll see that this refusal which put Israel outside of the covenant, it wasn't the end of the story for Israel, thank God. Paul, to repeat, is speaking of the middle of the covenant story when he refers to what happened to Israel. He's not talking about the end of the story. That will be next week in chapter 11. Israel's temporary hardening by God had a purpose. The purpose was to lead to the incorporation of the Gentiles within God's family. But nonetheless, in the light of Israel's failure, and in the light of Paul's clarity about what went wrong in her approach to God, what are the lessons that we can learn from this? Well, I believe there's a couple, and they can be phrased as questions. 
And I believe the first of them is this. Have we recognised for ourselves the wonderful accessibility and inclusivity of God? Have we recognised for ourselves the wonderful accessibility and inclusivity of God? It is fantastic, isn't it? That because God has come near to us, his salvation is so accessible. The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Many of us here turned to God and accepted his salvation many years ago now, didn't we? And that process doesn't happen again. We don't have to sort of uh, keep becoming Christians again and again. But if when you hear those words, you feel yourself wanting to confess that Jesus is Lord, we've done that in the creed earlier. And if as you hear those words, you hear in your heart the truth being proclaimed that yes, God really did raise Jesus from the dead and that has transformed everything. If you confess those words with your lips, with your mouths and you hear them being affirmed by your heart, then it is a powerful assurance to us. It's a powerful assurance that we dearly, really do belong to that God who found us in Jesus Christ and who now powerfully dwells within us through his Holy Spirit. And perhaps you need to hear that reassurance this morning. It might be that for whatever reason we feel a bit of a failure or that we haven't really matched up to what God expects of us. If that's the way that you are tempted to feel, the message that you've got to hear this morning is that the word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what the scripture is powerfully saying to us. The good news of Christianity is that God has come close to us in Jesus Christ, making his salvation wonderfully accessible and inclusive because all of us can believe with our hearts, can't we? We can all believe with our hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead. We can all proclaim with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. That is accessible to all of us. And if we've done that, and if we continue to do that, then we really can know that we're part of his people. The doubts that we have about failure and not being good enough those things can drop away. And it's very often the security of the knowledge that we belong to God, the assurance that we belong to God because of what happens with our mouths and within our hearts. Very often it's that security about our righteousness before him that then really enables God's grace to take hold of us and to really transform our lives and to make a real difference both to those lives and the lives of others. But perhaps a bigger question and a bigger challenge coming from this passage is this. 
Have we recognised the wonderful accessibility and inclusivity of God for others? We've thought for a few moments about that in reference to ourselves, but it is a bigger challenge for us to recognise the wonderful accessibility and inclusivity of God for others. This, I believe, is the biggest challenge from the story of Israel. Paul's analysis of Israel and how she went wrong show that it's, shows that it's all too easy for people to have a zeal that is misplaced. A zeal that's not based on knowledge and a zeal that if the new perspective on Paul is correct can all too easily seek to establish a righteousness that tries to be exclusive. The tribal mentality is a very strong one, isn't it? And as human beings, we have a very strong pull towards exclusivity. And it very often will work itself out in a Christian context. If anyone at all can belong to God, then that makes both us and the things that we've done for God sometimes appear less significant, doesn't it? And that's why churches all too easily, perhaps fairly commonly, can become exclusive places where most, if not all, of the cultural concessions being made are expected to come from those joining the church rather than those who belong to it already. The righteousness that comes from faith is very different from this. It's so exuberant about the accessibility of God's grace and the fact that this grace has come for everyone that it wants to see as many outsiders as possible being touched by his grace. That's frankly why Christianity, and not Judaism, is a missionary faith. Paul, in verses 14 to 15, is defending his mission to the Gentiles. For some, what Paul was up to as a Jew was scandalous. But Paul strongly defends what he's up to in taking God's message to the Gentiles, and he justifies this by saying, that if salvation is received by people hearing in their hearts and responding with their mouths, then that salvation has got to be proclaimed to them. As it's written, he says, quoting once again from Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. At the heart of Christianity is seeking to convey the wonderful accessibility and inclusivity of God to those who are currently outside of his people. The modern equivalence of those first century Gentiles that Paul spent so much of his time proclaiming Jesus to. Twelve years ago at this church we had a vision about reaching a different social class of people with the love of God. Like a lot of churches we had an overwhelmingly middle-class composition. And we wanted that to change. We wanted to make sure that the message of God's love could reach a different level socially. And what we started as a result was our monthly lunch club at this church called Grapevine. You'll know that it meets on the first Sunday of every month. It met last week. And the vision from the very beginning was to try to offer God's love with no strings attached. We didn't want a God slot. 
We didn't even want to start the meal with grace because the vision was for God's love to simply be shared with those who didn't think they were included. But, and this was absolutely crucial, Camilla Pierce, Sarah Parker and myself, as we launched Grapevine, firmly believed that if Grapevine showed this love, then God's powerful grace would bring about change in the lives of those coming. And that indeed has turned out to be the case. Because within a few years, we started up a Bible study and prayer group called Grapevine Extra. That's become established. It meets on the third Wednesday of every month and it's well attended and it's full of people uh, determined to discover more about Christianity and to respond. We also started a prayer time after Grapevine, meeting here in church. We felt it was right that it's something that people opt into after Grapevine rather than being imposed on everyone. But actually, last month, so many came in that actually we didn't have enough space. We have a semicircle of chairs at the far end of the church and so many came in for that prayer time, we had difficulty fitting them all in. It was a good problem to have. Grapevine members, as you know, sometimes come to this 11 o'clock service before the lunch. Uh, we had three and one dog last week. And next month, and this is something that I would hugely value your prayers for, all of us would, who run Grapevine. We're starting a monthly Grapevine service on a Tuesday evening. The aim is to continue this work of developing a worshipping community out of uh, the people uh, who come along to that lunch club. And the reason I firmly believe why all of this fruit has come from Grapevine, and uh, the metaphor was deliberate, it was Sarah who chose the name, the reason why all that fruit, I believe, has come from Grapevine is because these people have been simply astonished by the good news that God wants them. Astonished by the news that God wants them to be part of his family. As you enter Christchurch, on the wall opposite the entrance, you see the logo that Nathan has designed for the church with its different colours swirling around each other. The red one, you may know, is meant to represent the 9.30 congregation, yellow to represent 11 o'clock, the blue to represent 6.30, and then there are a couple of other colours. And you may well know already that the green part is meant to represent Grapevine and by extension our other communities like the uh, street cafe that seek to draw people in as well, Half Shares, our widows group, and so on. The purple is meant to represent the, the youth work that Nathan does and the youth uh, community of this church. And it's very moving to see the astonishment on the faces of members of Grapevine when they're told that that green bit in the logo represents them because they're part of this church community and this is where they belong. When they hear that message, they hear God speaking to them. They hear God in their heart saying, I want you. I want you to be part of my people. And that, I believe, is what they're responding to. What God wants them to know is that he isn't exclusive. And nor is his church when we get it right. What he wants those people and others like them 
to get is the message that he wants them to be part of his family. And that we, as fellow members of his people, we want them to be part of his family as well. And that's all because he has come near in Jesus Christ. The word is near them. It's in their mouth and in their heart. If they confess that Jesus is Lord and if they believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, then they too will be saved. But the critical part of this, and the reason why Paul invests so much time in writing these letters, which 2,000 years later we're still reading and digesting and trying to understand, the reason why Paul puts so much effort into writing this all up is because our role is critical. We've got a critical role in communicating that it's a righteousness of faith, not a righteousness of our own. We've got a, a crucial role in communicating that there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Why? Because scripture says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Israel, God's covenant people, failed. In the mystery of God's plan, that failure was all part of God's sovereign purpose for bringing in the Gentiles. And it wasn't to repeat God's final word for Israel, as we're here next week. Chapter 11 is crucial. If you uh, miss that week because you're away, uh, you'll get a lopsided view of Romans 9 to 11. So uh, get a copy of the sermon and listen to it online or get a printed copy from me because chapter 11 is really, really important. But as we reflect on this middle bit of the covenant story, let's not repeat the mistakes of Israel. Let's be committed to proclaiming the good news of the righteousness that has come by faith in what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And let's remember those inspiring words, both for ourselves and for others, the word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's God's solemn promise to every single one of us and that's God's promise to everyone who can respond to his love and our wonderful task that God has given us here at Christchurch is to be part of God's advance party part of his advance guard bringing the good news of his powerful life-changing love to as many people as possible let's pray that God will help us respond to that challenge father God it is a tremendous truth that you have come near and made yourself so accessible to both us and the other people in this world. Lord God, would you give us the assurance that if we proclaim with our mouth Jesus is Lord and if we believe in our hearts that you raised him from the dead and all that that means, then we're part of your family and have received your salvation. And Lord God, would you help us as a church to work out more and more how to express this in the way 
that we bring your love to others. We thank you for Grapevine. We thank you for that community. We pray for the start of this special service for members of Grapevine starting on the second Tuesday in February. We pray that we would be one church, one community, welcoming everyone and showing that your love is indeed for everyone. We know that because of human sin and because of our tendency to mess things up, we could get this horribly wrong. But we pray that your Holy Spirit would inspire us and lead us to be the church that you intend us to be, reflecting the good news that your righteousness comes through a faith that is open to absolutely everyone. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.